นโมตัสสะบุคควะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคควะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคควะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมสังถ้าจำได้The question is regularly asked about uh, what do Buddhists believe in, and the whole consideration of the place of faith in Buddhism compared to other religions. And I do think this is a it's a it's a very valid question because faith, well, faith is very powerful, and. Uh, It's faith that really gets us started on the journey, and and it's often the case that faith is all we've got that keeps us going on the journey. So faith uh, leads to energy. So faith has certainly got a significant place in in religious life. And if our faith becomes obstructed or we lose touch with it, yeah, we are in difficulty. But Just what place faith occupies in Buddhism is quite different from the place it occupies in theistic religions, and, and so I think I don't mind when people ask this question. It's good to ask this and to consider it. And I think for those of us also who consider ourselves Buddhists, it's good to to consider our faith and become conscious of its place in practice. And to, how, and to consider how well informed our faith is, because it seems to me that our beliefs in life are born out of our faith. Yeah, the faith that we hold. I understand faith. I experience faith as like a heart capacity. It's a very deep aspect of our lives, and depending on how our faith is informed. Then beliefs come out of it, and these beliefs are very much guiding principles in our lives. What we believe in is, um, yeah, has a really big impact on how we conduct our lives. And so I think it's good to keep going back and and looking at faith and and the place it occupies in our life, and how conscious we are of it, how able we are to protect it, and how well informed it is from the Buddhist perspective. Faith has to be informed by wisdom. I, again, I think I spoke last week about how mindfulness is given preeminence in Buddhism of the spiritual faculties. Uh, without mindfulness, the various other spiritual faculties can easily go out of balance, and these two faculties of faith and wisdom are, are uh, juxtaposed in, in the uh, Buddhist teachings as. 
they can easily go out of balance if there's not proper mindfulness. And if there's not mindfulness there, then yeah, there can be too much faith and our practice can be naive and uninformed and energetic, but, but uh, not productive of the sense of contentment and well-being and harmony for ourselves and others that we're hoping for. And likewise with the discernment or wisdom faculty, this likewise can can go out of balance if there's not enough mindfulness. So looking at the place of faith and how well informed it is by wisdom and how it affects our beliefs. This reminds me of a, uh, a story, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard a story some years ago about uh, a group of Christian nuns who were living in um, somewhere in the desert outside of a big city in, in Egypt. As the story goes, one of the nuns, I think it was, I don't know if it was an educational institution or an orphanage, but one of the nuns was heading into town in the Land Rover, in the, uh, the community's Land Rover, and just short of the city it ran out of petrol. So she was stuck out there in the desert without any petrol and quite away from the, from the town. So the only thing she had to do was to walk into the town and get some petrol. And when she searched the back of the Jeep, the only thing there was there to, as a container was actually a, um, what do you call it in this country, a potty, a bed chamber. Is that what you call it in this country? A potty. You know, bed, you know what a potty is? Yeah? Yeah. yeah, a bed chamber. Yeah. And so this is the only thing the poor nun had to... Uh, you know, but there's no option. She's out there in the middle of the desert. And so anyway, she, so apparently she walks all the way into town and fills up the, uh, the bedchamber, the potty with petrol, and she walks back to, <laughs> to the jeep. And, and uh, she's busy filling up the... She's pleased to get there, obviously, and she's busy pouring the petrol into the, the tank of the jeep, looking forward to getting into Newcastle, into, Newcastle <laughs> into the city. One of the, apparently at this time, one of the local, one of the indigenous people walked by and saw what she was doing and, and he looks and he says, well, sister, he says, I, I may not share your beliefs, but I certainly do admire your faith. And <laughs> well, <laughs> as I say, I'm, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it's a good, <laughs> it's a good example <laughs> of how things can go, get misunderstood. <laughs> And people do misunderstand things if we don't look into them clearly. So, <laughs> so yeah. So that uh, that uh, local chap obviously misunderstood what the good sister was up to. You know what she was doing was perfectly suitable and so on, but <laughs> he got the wrong end of the stick and jumped to all sorts of uh, false conclusions. And if we don't inspect our faith, this is actually what happens. Maybe not exactly that, but <laughs> but something like that can happen, where where we ourselves can jump to all sorts of conclusions, or other people can jump to all sorts of conclusions. So faith needs to be carefully considered. It's so energizing faith, when, and as I said, the beliefs that come out of it really determine the way we conduct our lives. And like joining a monastery like this, I've seen. People come, and I talk about seeing people, I've seen myself joining the monastery 27 years ago and 23 years old, just off the hippie trail, managed to make my way up through Indonesia, island hopping through the various islands of Indonesia and Singapore and Malaysia and just arriving in Thailand and 
and full of inspiration for Buddhism and I'd done my first Buddhist meditation retreats and, and I was so sure that uh, this was the answer to all my problems and, and I was utterly convinced and, and my conviction, my faith meant that actually I was able to cut off all sorts of other things in my life. I, although I was living in Bangkok, which most of you know is a pretty lively city, it, um, it wasn't of any interest to me to be going behaving heedlessly. I was convinced I had faith that I was on the path to, to uh, liberation and, and it was faith that meant that I was able to shave my head and change my name and put on these robes and throw away my jeans and my sleeping bag and my backpack and become a Buddhist monk. And, and, but I didn't really know what I was getting myself in for, that's for sure. I was, it was looking back now, I would say it was a very naive decision. A lot of faith, but not a sense of the bigger picture. And I think this is one, one helpful way of understanding wisdom. Wisdom is like the bigger picture. One monk I met had the good fortune to spend some time talking with him uh, near Chiang Mai in Thailand many years ago. Well, I, I think I asked him exactly, well, you know, well, how did he understand wisdom? And he said, well, wisdom is seeing both sides of things. So usually we only see the side that accords with our preferences. You know, like if you get something, you can, we've, got, we've got the money now to get this retreat house nearly finished. Well, nearly got the money, don't misunderstand me, we still need some more. But there's funds there to complete the next phase. And, and it looks like we might have a builder to do the job and we're very happy about that, we're very enthusiastic about that. We can get enthusiastic and happy and energized about getting our retreat house finished. But when we get our retreat house finished, what do we also get? We also get the obligation to run the place. The running costs are going to go a lot higher. And we're going to have to clean the place. We're going to have people to operate the place. And, and so uh, one way of understanding wisdom is that it doesn't only see what we gain and what's in it for me, but we also see the other side, which is also we lose the freedom when you don't have a building to look after. I've seen this in other monasteries as well. If we can just buy some more land, if we can just have a bigger building, and the monasteries get bigger and bigger, and and then they get so big that nobody wants to live there and run them, so everybody goes away and lives in small monasteries, and there's just a few poor, worn-out old abbots hanging around running these monasteries. Ajahn Chah used to point out to his, the abbots of his monasteries, he says, you think that when you get your new Dhamma Hall you'll be happy. He says, you get your new Dhamma Hall, it doesn't take long to get it, but then you'll just have to spend the rest of your life looking after it. Or you think it's great when you get a lot of disciples, but you know it takes 20 minutes to ordain a young monk, but then you can spend the rest of your life looking after them. At the very least it takes five years to train them. So the way of preference is <clears throat> just seeing what's in it for me, seeing a limited aspect. Whereas wisdom means when there's wisdom, when there's clear seeing, we, we, we see both sides. Or I like to think of it as seeing the bigger picture. With, for instance, our faith in practice, uh, our faith in uh, the Dhamma. In the beginning it is a little naive and, and we do... Uh, make some uh, overestimations of our ability. But so long as there's 
also the appreciation of the place of wisdom, then when our faith is challenged, we don't see that as a failure. We understand that faith has to be informed by wisdom. Now, if we really grasp at our faith and we don't understand the place of wisdom, then when our faith is challenged and we, you know, we maybe feel a little shaken by something that happens, it's easy to assume that we're failing. Yeah. When we're full of confidence and enthusiasm in the beginning, we think, I can keep all the precepts, I can, I can be up there with the best of them and sit meditation, and maybe for a while we can, but then we start to encounter some of our um, deeper-held tendencies that we weren't quite banking on. And then we feel challenged, and then we maybe feel a little disillusioned, and our faith becomes somewhat overshadowed. Now, if we've already prepared ourselves with an appreciation for the place of wisdom, well then we don't necessarily feel overly threatened by our faith being clouded. Our faith can be questioned, that's all right, it's okay to feel unsure. The Buddha said that all aspects of our practice need to be informed by wisdom, by clear seeing, and, and the encouragement that's given over and over again in practice and is to contemplate the, the themes that lead to the arising of wisdom, like the theme of impermanence, that everything conditioned is impermanent. If we have this contemplation alive within us, if we have this wise contemplation functioning for us, well then, even when our, our faith is a little challenged, well, you know, faith is impermanent as well. Listen, we don't haven't arrived at unshakable faith yet, we have our faith is still shakable and so it's okay that our faith is shaken. And, or our energy, sometimes we, we, uh, we lose enthusiasm and we don't have energy for the practice. And again, if we understand and appreciate the, the uh, wisdom theme of impermanence, then, then you know, when our energy drops, we can factor that in and say, well, okay, it'll change, it'll change. And, we don't jump to conclusions. We're not fooled by the way things appear to be. It is so, so easy to be fooled by the way things appear to be. And, and at any stage of practice, this is true. We get comfortable at some new level of insight and clarity, but then you know, we get used to it, and, and then the old tendencies of grasping and clinging come in, and the next thing you know, we find that we're getting ourselves all tied up in knots over something again, and we think, well, what happened there? And Well, if we look closely, we see, well, actually, the habits of grasping are still there. We're, we're looking now maybe at a deeper level, but we're still looking at the same thing, and so the same pattern has to be investigated over and over and over again. And the way things appear to be very easily deceives us, and so the encouragement the Buddha gave us to cultivate wisdom, to cultivate the ability to see beyond the way things appear to be to the way things truly are, is something that we, as I said, we need to apply on all levels of practice, with our faith, with our relationship to the sensory realm. Our faith can encourage us in the beginning to practice a little restraint and clean up some of the rough edges of our life and we feel good about that and our meditation's going well, but then again we get used to it and we can easily lose a sense of confidence and clarity and, and, and commitment and conviction and, 
and our minds going off into all sorts of old habits of you know, clinging to fantasies of you know like if you're living the celibate renunciate life the mind can go off thinking about you know missing your friends and you know, just watching some good videos and just going out and getting a little heedless. Suddenly, you know, after a few years, of, in the first few years of practice, that seems thoroughly inappropriate and the mind just wipes it out. But then after a few years, you can easily start thinking about it again. And it's these habits of clinging that we have that that need to be investigated over and over again. I like that story that uh, many of you will be familiar with, the uh, Mullah Nasruddin sitting out on the pavement in front of his house with a big bucket of chilies. Yeah. Mullah Nasruddin sitting there eating chilies one after the other and tears are streaming down his face and he's just popping another chili in his mouth and tears streaming down his face and he's going at it and just one chili after another and and the neighbours come by and say, Mullah, what are you doing sitting there eating chilies? And he says, I'm trying to find a sweet one. Well, it's not the nature of chilies. Chilies are not sweet. It's not in the nature of sensory gratification to find happiness. We think if we can just gratify this desire, just this one, this is a refined desire. If I can just, you know, we think we grab a hold of it and we ache until we, we believe that we're going to feel good when we get what it is we're longing for, no matter how subtle or refined it is, the truth is, the wisdom perspective, the bigger picture is that all grasping leads to suffering. It doesn't matter how subtle or refined or sophisticated the object of our desire is, if we grasp at it, if our relationship is informed by unawareness, then we spoil it and, and we suffer. So our relationship to the sensory realm, you can have some perspective on it for a while, but until we have a wisdom is really, really thoroughly well established in our hearts, real wisdom, unshakable wisdom, then we keep getting fooled. And and it seems to me the trick is not to necessarily think we're not going to get fooled, certainly not to pretend that we, we're wise when we're not, but rather to look at the the willingness. Are we increasing in willingness to suffer when we when we make mistakes? You know, we tend to suffer. We tend to want to cover it up, or to find an excuse for it and say, "Well, you know, something went wrong, or you know, whatever. Or I'll do better next time." If, however, we're really interested in seeing beyond the way things appear to be, I feel it's it's, it's wiser to to prepare ourselves, to train ourselves to actually, when we're suffering, to really take it on, to really, to willingly suffer, instead of fighting it and trying to pretend we're not suffering, trying to smile, trying to distract ourselves or get away from it, whatever, but to come back and just say, oh, suffering. If there's suffering, there must be a cause. To me, that's the functioning of wisdom. Wisdom wisdom leads to the interests in seeing beyond the way things appear to be. When we're suffering, the way it appears to be is something's gone wrong. At least that's, that's the way it appears to me. When I'm suffering, the apparent reality is something's gone wrong. 
me or somebody else or whatever. What wisdom suggests is that if you're suffering, there's a cause. And if we look with interest, receptivity, carefulness, sensitivity, then in time we'll arrive at seeing for ourselves the cause, seeing beyond the way things appear to be. And then when we see that, well then wisdom has served its purpose. It's taken us to the point where we actually change our relationship to life and learning how to relate without habits of clinging, for instance. In the area of sense restraint, also, the teaching certainly encourages <coughs> to exercise sense restraint and say that if we, we keep following sensory longings, and then uh, we're never going to see beyond the way things appear to be. And, and, uh, and if we have a little experience of that in the beginning, like in meditation where the, the mind is used to following its various objects and you know, you're sitting meditation there and the mind wanders off after some fantasy of of food or 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 a nice beach somewhere or a nice conversation with a nice friend or or a good book or you know, some various sensual uh, possibilities instead of following them which is our habit we, we restrain the mind and we stay with the meditation object now you do this consistently and carefully for a period of time eventually we will arrive at the appearance of experiencing what happens when the mind just drops and there's an actual body-mind experience of a, another dimension of our lives that we've not known before and, and, and there's, a, there's a quality of freedom and clarity and, and intelligence and, and goodness and brightness in that state of being and and we feel really good. Now at that point it's very easy to then think, oh, this is what I've got to do. I've got to restrain my senses. I've got to restrain my mind. I've got to stop my mind from just going off after all these sense objects all the time. And and so uh, med- meditators in the beginning get really diligent about restraining their their uh, senses because they've experienced the uh, pleasure of it. It feels pleasant when we're not pulled out all the time by, by things. And, but it's easy at that stage of practice to jump to the conclusion that somehow sense objects are an obstruction or a problem in practice. To blame the sense objects for the distraction, when in fact really the, the problem is our inability to be rightly restrained. Our, our habit of always going out after sense objects is strong. If we can restrain it, it feels good. But we can fall for the misperception of, of making the, the sense objects responsible for, for the, the struggle that we have. And probably some of you have read Ajahn Chah's biography and are familiar with the, that stage of his practice, where as a young monk he was very, very interested in women. He decided that for one period, one three month period of the, the Rains retreat, that he just wouldn't even look at a woman for the whole three months. He had real confidence in the Buddha's teaching on sense restraint and he had some experience in his practice and so he made a vow, made an aditan, a determination that for three months he would not look at a woman and probably with the expectation that come the end of Vasa that he really would have 
cracked it, certainly he hoped, because he, he, was, he was seriously distracted by women and it was causing him a lot of problems and he thought that this would settle the matter. And he talks about it as uh, you know, the effort that it took, but he was a very determined fellow and he succeeded the whole three months. He didn't look at a single woman when he went Bindabhat in the village, keep his eyes down and look in his bowl and not look at women and if women came to the monastery he would avoid them and, and so on. And, and then the end of the wasa came and there's the Pawarana ceremony ending the wasa, the, the rains retreat and, and then there's the Katina festival where everybody comes to the monastery to bring various requisites, bring new robes and they have a nice big festival and he thought, well I've completed my vow so we'll see how we do. And he, he thought, well, here's this, you know, you could see, maybe you could see some nice legs walking towards him or something. And, and so he lifted his eyes up and he looked at this woman and, and <laughs> kapow, the passions flared up. And he talks about it as if he thought his whole chest was going to explode with passion, or his head was going to explode with passion. Much to his disappointment, all the sense restraints hadn't actually solved his problem. Uh, it wasn't women that was the problem. It wasn't looking at women that was the problem. It was the ability to hold, and actually that was the benefit of all that practice, he said was, you know, although he was some, somewhat disappointed to see the limitation of his effort, the benefit of it was that he realized the real, the real point of sense restraint is that it gives you the opportunity to contemplate the dynamic of the senses that we have these sense organs, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind and there's the sense objects, sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions and then there's the contact. If we don't restrain our tendencies to follow sense objects then the mind is continually stirred up and we're following the kind of Moolah Nasrudin example of eating chilies hoping we're going to find a nice sweet one. but it doesn't, all it does just makes us cry more. If, however, we exercise sense restraint out of interest in coming to understand the nature of sensory existence, not out of just having an opinion about sense objects, whether it's monks having opinions about women or whether it's nuns having opinions about men being responsible for for the struggle in their practice, if we don't just have opinions about sense objects, but rather we exercise sense restraint out of an interest in understanding, coming to understand for ourselves the dynamic, the nature of sensory impingement, well then sense restraint is informed by wisdom and, and serves a useful function. So, Likewise with, with our faith, when faith is informed by wisdom, then it serves its function. When sense restraint is formed by, informed by wisdom, it serves its function. And it's something worth considering in all areas of our practice. And compassion. Nobody has any doubts about how good compassion is and what a good thing compassion is. The capacity to feel suffering with others. You know, in English the word compassion is you know, literally that calm with passion, feeling with others in the context of suffering. Or in the Pali, the, the word karuna, the, the capacity to empathize with the suffering of beings and that wish, may beings be free from suffering. And nobody would, I imagine, suggest that that's a bad thing. But possibly in our own lives, 
or in, in observing others, we, 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 we at some stage rather have come to see how if compassion is not informed by wisdom, then it can throw us out of balance. You know, there is such a thing as, as too much compassion or, or unwise compassion. I know my, uh, a lot of my ancestors were very compassionately busy converting the indigenous people of New Zealand to change their religion. They shouldn't get around half naked. They should put on clothes and, and sing hymns. I'm not sure. Well, actually, I, I am quite sure that, that, that actually, a lot of that did them a lot of damage. And there was certainly a compassionate motivation to save people that, that my uh, religious ancestors perceived as um, heading for hell. That was the experience, or, or in fact, my, my own experience, my own brothers and sisters uh, struggle, struggle over, over my future. They think that I'm, I'm heading for a pretty bad future, and they might be right. I, I can't be sure about that. But I think the, uh, if, if our practice of compassionate concern for others is not informed by wisdom, I think it's fairly obvious that it can throw us off. We just, it's an everyday example. You can see when parents are bringing up children. Those of you that are parents will know what it's like when, when the child is, is learning to walk. And uh, you don't like seeing the, the little boy or little girl fall over. You just don't want to see them hurt themselves. And, but somewhere along the line you realize that you've got to let them well, we have that saying, let them stand on their own two feet, don't we? Yeah, which is, uh, there's some wisdom in that. Yeah, to let them experience falling over. Otherwise, they're never going to learn. Or like learning to ride a bicycle is the same thing. You know, if you've always got somebody running along, do you remember what it was like? I don't know whether it's the same for everybody, but I remember when I was learning to ride a bicycle, my big brother was running behind, um, holding the carrier on the back of my bike, and then I'd get up to a certain speed and he'd, he'd let go and then I'd fall over. But then next time he, he'd hold on a bit longer. Then eventually one day he let go and I didn't fall over. And it was all right, I didn't need my little brother anymore, my bigger brother, to hold the carrier. Uh, but every time I fell over I got hurt. Actually my brother seemed to think that was fun. <laughs> but that's not... <laughs> that's perhaps not, not, not a good example. But you, sometimes when somebody comes to us and, and the suffering and our compassion just wants to make them feel good because well is it compassion that makes them want to feel good compassion yes is the capacity to feel with the other in their experience of suffering that's the sensitivity but is it a compassion that makes us want to take that suffering away from them I'm not sure it is actually I think often if we see the bigger picture if there's wisdom there then really that which wants to take the suffering away from them is really our aversion for pain. And that's not always so easy to see. It's, it, takes, it takes some discernment, it takes some real inner inquiry to look at where am I coming from when I want to stop somebody from suffering. Am I, is that really a compassionate motivation? Am I really concerned about their suffering or is it me that's actually, I just can't stand seeing them suffer. Those of you that were here for, for Sue's funeral uh, will remember 
when I read out the Sutta of the Dart that, that Sue said that she wanted to have read out, and it's a very blunt uh, pointing directly to the, what's going on at funerals, where, where uh, the Buddha said quite pointedly that actually it's a waste of time to get lost in grieving for the lost ones. And, and really, the only one we're grieving for is ourselves. It's our pain, the pain of loss. Now, that's difficult to take. But if there's a willingness to practice asking difficult questions, then I feel we, we can go there too. We can look at that too. And say, well, what's really going on when we're confronted with pain? Or we're confronted with evil, for that matter. What, what is the place of righteous indignation in practice? Whether it's righteously indignant towards ourselves when we see our own limitations or righteously indignant towards others when we see some politician or some newspaper reporter for, for that matter. If we're not careful, that when that indignation gets stirred up, it's powerful, it can start coming up into our head and coming out through our mouth and and is that wisdom speaking? We might feel totally righteous. Righteous indignation, that's it. It feels righteous. You know, or some evil, nasty, monstrous dictator who's doing terrible things. We just wipe them out. That's the best solution. That's what righteous indignation tells us to do. What the Buddha pointed out was actually when you conquer somebody, you just develop a new enemy. To go wiping out the enemy is not a solution. From the perspective of wisdom, we can understand that. From the perspective of preference, we don't understand that. We just feel, I don't like it, get rid of it. Doctors these days, as many of you know, are having to deal with the consequences of overuse of antibiotics. It's a, it's a quick fix that... Uh, if we've got something we don't like, we'll just blast it with something that's going to knock it out as quick as possible. But now medical science has realized that there are a lot of seriously strong mutated bacteria around that are very, very difficult to get rid of these days because of that particular strategy. Our wisdom perspective sees the bigger picture. And this is really important in, in everyday life. External examples, it's important, obviously. It's also worth considering the consequence of, of a lack of this wisdom inwardly. What happens, for instance, when we see ourselves making mistakes? When we see that we've really crossed a boundary and said something unkind or unskillful? It's so easy to just get enraged towards ourselves. Yeah. I should know better. I shouldn't have done that. After all these years of practice, how, how can I still be doing this? And, and, and what's going on there? We, do, we actually, if, you, if we really look into that, if we really inquire into that, what's going on? We're getting off on it. We're getting off on hating ourselves. Feeling, we're getting off on feeling righteous feeling good and condemning ourselves, blasting ourselves, destroying ourselves. And, and from the perspective of wisdom, the consequences are tragic, terrible. It doesn't do us any good at all. From an uninspected perspective of preference, it might feel right. I feel right by condemning myself for being wrong. 
thankfully we have this encouragement to to move towards seeing the bigger picture to cultivating a wise perspective that doesn't just settle for the way things appear to be just because it feels good to get angry at myself just because it feels right to get angry at myself for being bad doesn't mean to say it is right it might feel that way but it doesn't mean to say it is that way so with the wise, sensitive, considered exercise of sense restraint we restrain our minds from jumping to conclusions maybe it's not right to beat myself up all the time when I make mistakes you know maybe what the Buddha said about equanimity and <laughs> is a good idea yeah. Yeah. so the encouragement that we have to um, not settle for the way things appear to be it's not a doctrine, it's not just something to believe in, it's not as if the Buddha was preaching a doctrine of doubt that we should become suspicious of everything and not trust anything, not at all there's a very strong uh, encouragement to cultivate trust, a trust that there is a real reality, trust in the underlying order behind chaos, yes but to really work to see that this trust that we're operating with and being energized by is trust that's informed by wisdom Thank you very much for your attention. Second.